to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we're convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Well, good morning, Imago. I'm glad to see you. If you are visiting with us again, I want to invite you up to the visitor forum so that you can know more about uh, what we do and we can find out about how we can better serve you. So I'm glad you're here. Glad all of you are here. And we have had a couple of weeks where uh, last Sunday we had a baptism festival. And if you were here, uh, I hope that you uh, were able to meet some new people around the tables. And it was great to hear people's story and watch people declare a a public declaration of uh, their following Jesus. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, Eric... Uh, preached a sermon and, and introduced uh, us into a uh, part of this story. This we're going through the Bible in the year, and we're in a section now where we're um, talking about the prophets. And um, Eric's um, introduction said that there's basically uh, it wasn't just that, that God wanted people to come to Himself, but the disconnect was that as they were coming to themselves, they had turned it in on themselves rather than it had affected uh, being a culture that expressed justice and, and the character of God together. And so um, the problem with looking at a prophet is that usually they're addressing a problem. So they aren't cheerleaders. So we don't have a section in the story where God sent cheerleaders. And went, yay, follow Jesus. Okay, this is kind of like uh, we're at this place where we're going, here's a straight edge, you're not there. And so um, today, most of you could be at the place where you're going, hmm, should have taken a painkiller. Uh, we're going to walk through some things that I, I think um, will challenge you, I hope. Uh, we're going to uh, look at a passage that I think is is fundamental to our understanding of um, what Jesus did for us. In fact, this is one of the most often quoted passages in the New Testament. And to kind of set it up even more with the gravity that I'd like to look at the passage with, um, I want to tell you a story about something that happened to me when when I was a young adult, which was right when the earth was hardening, okay? And so uh, uh, as I was this um, young kind of impressionable guy and this um, missionary who had spent his whole life um, doing missions around the world and had actually been in China before uh, missionaries were booted out of China, uh, and uh, he had come home and uh, on furlough, and he was watching the news, and he was uh, in about central uh, California while he's watching the news, and there's this person who is protesting on a public, um, uh, like, legislative stairs of, of one of their buildings, and uh, he wrapped himself in a flag and had doused himself in gasoline and lit himself on fire. And... Um, this missionary, his name was Dick Hillis, and as his, he was telling the story, he said, at first when I uh, watched it, I was just kind of gripped like, oh my gosh, he's really, he's really killing himself in this protest. And he said, I went from kind of amazement and horror to anger that there was somebody close enough to, to capture this on film, and they could have put the camera down and maybe helped the guy survive. But they were more interested in capturing the story than embracing the person. And the chapters we're going to look at today, uh, because they're so central, obviously there's a lot of 
diversity as interpretation and um, even some controversy as to uh, who might be talked about. And, And my concern is that in the midst of all that discussion, we could miss the intimacy that God intends for us to, to grab. And so I want to just take a moment to pray with you that uh, in the midst of my words, in the midst of uh, your hearing and all the things that uh, are on your plate as you came in or the things that you're anticipating as you would walk out, that we could have a moment here where, where you hear from God. So let's pray together. Father, I want to ask that the words of my mouth And the meditation of each one of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't guessed where we're going to go yet, we're going to go to a couple of chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53. So if you have a Bible or an app and you just want to get there, uh, I'm going to start by just looking at the first couple of verses in Isaiah 52. And like I said, there are people that want to... um, uh, suggest that they, they don't know or that they have an idea of who um, this is addressing, but there's a lot of different ideas. Is it talking about Israel? Is it talking about Isaiah? Is it talking about a coming Messiah? Who, who are the verses talking about? And so as we just kind of start chapter uh, 52, it says, Awake, awake, Zion, clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defile will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, daughter Zion, now a captive. For this is what the Lord says to you. You were sold for nothing and without money you will be redeemed. It's pretty easy to think, okay, these verses are talking about Israel. How can that be an issue? And there really isn't an issue with these first two or three verses. Of course, God is talking to Israel. One of the interesting things about it is Isaiah is writing about 700 years before Jesus. Okay? And in the midst of that, there's 12 tribes that comprise uh, this nation Israel, 10 to the north, 2 to the south. And the 10 to the north are going to be destroyed by Assyria, never to be rebuilt again. The, la- the bottom two uh, in the southern kingdom uh, are going to be taken captive by an uh, empire called Babylon. They're going to be in captivity for 70 years, but they're going to return. So in the midst of that, you've got some prophets, people that God has sent to Israel basically to tell kings who are leading the nation, um, turn around from the way you are leading because you're not leading in a great way. Even priests who have been the religious gatekeepers of Israel have mission drift to the place that they're no longer actually connecting with the people as much as brokering a right standing with God. So if you bring the right offering and I'm able to pinch off enough of that to to live on it myself, then I can declare you forgiven. And it became way more a position of power than one of servant. And so Isaiah is one of those prophets that sent to call leaders back to being stewards of God's power, 
priests to be people who connect God and people together. And in the midst of that, even as we just read those first couple of verses, to have the people of Israel start to see themselves as the children of God. They'd started to see themselves as castaways, people that God was not approving of. If he's not approving of us, of course he'd destroy us like the ten tribes. If he's not approving of us, then of course he puts us in captivity. And captivity is our punishment for having turned our back on God. And to some extent, those um, scenarios or explanations are true. But on, on another extent, they're very simplistic. And it's a lot like when something happens to you that you don't like. A car accident, a ticket, uh, a loss of health, a loss of a relationship. Uh, You can just fill in the blank with whatever it is that feels like a loss and feels like something you don't like. And there's probably a part of you that rehearses, had I lived my life differently? Had I made decisions differently or different decisions? Then... I wouldn't be where I am today. Now, again, there's part of that that's true. Our decisions have led us down a path. Our behaviors have led us down a path. But the idea that we get a redo isn't part of reality. And so we we now are in a place where the productive thought is what do I do now, not I should have done it differently. Okay? So Israel is being called to what do I do now? And that's why he says, clothe yourself with strength. Put on garments of splendor. He's saying, those are not the garments of captivity. Those are not the clothes of bad decisions. They're not the footwear of a rebel. So don't dress yourself in all of your mistakes and sins. But it's an invitation to dress themselves in the work of God on their behalf. So as we start to look at this passage, I want to look at it from that perspective uh, as to who God's speaking to. At those verses, he's speaking to Israel, calling them to their identity as the people of God. But then it starts to go a little bit into a different direction in 53. By the time we get to verse 2, it says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Okay, those verses for Israel to say, oh yeah, that's us kind of feels like a stretch for them to say, now, is he talking about Isaiah? Or is he talking about a coming Messiah or someone like that? That starts to be the question. Uh, On this side of the New Testament, people say, now, is he talking about Jesus? And so I just want to read a couple of verses out of Acts chapter 8 and come right back into Isaiah. In Acts chapter 8, one of the people who was appointed to the first church as a deacon was a man named Philip. And Philip finds himself just uh, in a miraculous way transported onto a road where there's a chariot that he's approaching. And in this chariot is an Ethiopian eunuch who's a diplomat of um, probably the queen of Ethiopia's um, uh, entourage. 
And so as he's coming back from Jerusalem, uh, he's reading from Isaiah. So I just want to pick it up uh, there in in, uh, Acts 8, verse 30. Philip ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet, and said to him, Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet speaking about? Himself or someone else? And then Philip began with this very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So um, I'm going to take the position that this is talking about Jesus. And, and I feel like if no one else agrees with me, at least Philip did. And so um, I'll just kind of take that as good company. Okay, so as we, we look at this, I want to look at it in terms of something that's called an atonement. It's just a simple word that um, has its root in, in, in crunching together at one mint. Okay, atonement. How do we become one with God? Uh, somehow in this story, we've been told that God created humans that they rebelled so that there wasn't this oneness. And the story is about God inviting people back to oneness with him. And it's a mystery. All the things that are involved, it's a, a very multi-sided like a multifaceted diamond to, to look at what's involved in God actually reconciling or making himself one with us. And what usually happens is pick, people pick one perspective or one theory and say, that's where I'm going. And because they pick that one side or one facet of, of the issue, they miss a lot of other pieces. Let's say, for example, um, someone is um, going to get married. I do a fair share of premarital counseling here. And, um, you know, there'll be a time where I'll say, hey, do you understand finances? And they go, no. And I go, neither do I. Let's move on. So, uh, uh, you know, we just kind of walk through some of the things that are going to be roadblocks. And usually I'll say to them, so let's talk about how to have a fight that's fair. And they go, oh, no, we're not going to have a fight. And I go, okay, so right now pull out your phone and let's make an appointment for three weeks after your wedding because you're going to have a fight. Okay, so um, they're going, oh, no, that can't be the case. And when we talk about the, the nature of a fight, one of the big things to help them understand is that when they commit to each other, they're committing to an intimacy that they're committing to that has a higher priority than being right. So if you win the argument and lose intimacy, you lost because that's... That's the measure of whether or not it was a good fight. Is could you stay in the relationship and still work through the disagreement? Not somehow forfeit or crack open the relationship or go to opposite corners and somehow work through who won. And so when we start looking at this idea of what is God about with us, if we look at this passage and come up with here are the mechanics 
of how God makes us one with himself. And we lose the invitation to intimacy. Then, then we really have lost the ethos of what at one means. If intimacy isn't the pursuit of the discussion, if being one with God is lost in trying to figure out a theory or figure out the explanation, then we really have lost what God has done just so that we can be right in our explanation from our perspective of where it is. So if I were to say to this couple that's in this premarital, what's the purpose of marriage? And someone says, well, we're getting married because we want to spend our lives together. That's great. But what happens if, for one reason or another, uh, you're in, one of you is in the military and you don't get to spend the next year together? Did you just void your purpose for coming together? Well, we're getting together so that we can have children. And so you experience the heartbreak of infertility. Do you just now have a purposeless marriage? Well, our purpose is that we might grow old together and care for each other. And one of you dies in your 30s. Did, did that make it a purposeless relationship? So there are a lot of different considerations as to what's going on in marriage. But hopefully the purpose is for two people to express an intimate connection with one another. And, and what God's inviting us to is to experience an intimate connection with him. And there are some, some issues that Jesus addresses along the way. So the first one I want to look at is the idea that there's some suffering involved. For Jesus, it gets described this way in Isaiah 52. Just as there are many who are appalled at him, it was because his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man that his form was marred beyond human likeness. It was on to say in chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God. But when he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds are we healed. I mean, there's a lot of suffering words that are going on in those verses. From crushed and bruised to rejected and despised. It isn't just physical suffering, it's emotional suffering as well. And, and so part of what it looks like for us to become one with God is for us to understand that suffering is not a punishment Suffering is part of what it looks like for us to be transformed. Just like Josh said that part of what it looks like, one delivery system for being transformed is serving. Suffering is also a way that we're transformed. So let's just say there are some of you who are parents of adult children. Okay? Can you remember back to when you were parenting a junior hire? That was painful for everyone involved. You know, and if your junior hire says, Dad, what is the purpose of puberty? 
You're going, I don't know. (laughs) It seems like there isn't any good purpose. It probably wasn't puberty before the fall in Genesis 3. You know, it's just a consequence, you know. So so they're really, why why is there puberty? Why can't we just be like the little baby bird who's ready to fly someday? Why do we have to go through that? And it's because our character is being shaped. And it takes a lifetime to shape a character so that it looks like Jesus. And for him to go through suffering gives us an example of what it looks like to live life in a painful world. It is a legitimate reason for Jesus to have come to earth to simply give us an example It's not a big enough reason to be the whole explanation, but an explanation that misses Jesus being part of our, part of Jesus being here is to give us an example of how to live life. If we don't include that in whatever explanation we have of what it looks like to be one, then we've missed a component of it. And it's here in these, these two chapters that in fact, in chapter 52, it says he's going to be beaten beyond recognition as a human. This was written 700 years before Jesus came to earth. And and yet suffering becomes part of it. There's another part where it describes freedom. In verse 3 of 52, it says, For this is what the Lord says, You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. So there's this pulling out of some kind of captivity and into freedom where Jesus is a victor. He has won a victory. He's, he's gone in to a captive place, and in our case, that would be sin, and figured out a way through his own death to be able to redeem us or get us free so that we really don't have a storyline that says, I'm trapped. Um, Most of us live in traps, but Jesus has come to pave the way for an exit from those. And and it gives us hope to understand that Jesus is a victor. Because we can look at the cross and we can say, how could anybody look at that as a victory? In fact, I'm convinced that that's one of the reasons why most of the people who were Jewish believers who had an entire Old Testament available to them missed him. Because they thought victory would have meant defeat of Rome rather than what was keeping their heart captive. Rather than what was keeping them from being intimate with God. And so they missed Jesus' victor. But they looked for somebody who was going to be a conqueror, but they were looking for the wrong thing to be conquered. There's another kind of facet that goes on here where it says, See my servant, he will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And so there's this exaltation that's going to happen. And we get the picture of that when we see the life of Jesus through resurrection. And then he ascends into heaven. And Paul says that he's seated at the right hand of God, given a name that is above every name. So, so we get this picture that there's this exaltation. Now, who wouldn't want to be that person? All of us would like suffering to be short. 
But then it would be okay if we experienced victory, and that could have a long run. That'd be okay. And then even when victory kind of runs its course, then exaltation happens. This is a great set of cards to be dealt. No wonder Israel's going, well, he's talking about us. And no wonder someone would say, whoever's coming has got to be wonderful. But at the same time, they don't get that our sin is what he has to pay the price for. And so there's a part of this understanding of what makes us one is that there's definitely a part where there's a substitute required where someone has to substitute in our place. We can't suffer enough for what we've done because we would suffer to the point of death and then there's no return. But someone suffered to the point of death and resurrected and gives us his work as a substitute for our penalty. That's, that's really hard to understand, but for most people, it's really hard to embrace because we don't want to admit we need a substitute. We'd rather look at the idea, I can tough it through, I can make it through this, I'm going to have to suffer whatever theory I hold, whether it's Jesus who delivers me or whether I deliver myself, I still got to go through the hard time. So why wouldn't I just believe that me making it through the hard time is good enough? Rather than realizing We can't go through a hard enough time for it to happen, that we would be one with God. Let me read the verses that kind of go there, 4, 5, and 6 of Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed. For our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the picture is that someone takes our place. Our iniquity is laid on him. That he has been wounded and we are healed. There's a, there's a substitution. Someone stands in our place as part of what it requires or takes for us to be one with God. Now, one of the reasons why that gets objected to so strongly is because it just sounds like a business transaction. Christ dies for us, I accept him, uh, you accept him, and bang, it's a deal done. And it's not a transaction, it's an invitation. If you heard Ava talk about what's happening upstairs at the visitor forum, she said hospitality, by its definition, is a welcoming. The cross, where Christ died for your sin, is a welcoming to the family of God. You're welcome in based on his substituting for you. It's a hospitality act of love. So um, 
Christopher Wright is this Old Testament scholar, and um, he, t- he directs the International Scholars uh, uh, Mission Agency that John Stott uh, started, and um, he's the son of a missionary, and he tells a story about his dad who was in this mission village, and he'd learned the language and was ready to tell the uh, nationals that God loved them. And he tried to figure out how to do that because he really hadn't come up with the word for love that he wanted to use. So he just used some of the words that he saw people talking about, whether it was friendship or whatever. And when he said it, um, that, you know, God wants to be your loving friend or whatever it was, it was an inappropriate word construction. And all of them laughed at him and mocked him. And he felt defeated that he couldn't even tell these people God loved them. So he's on a walk, kind of pensive, and he gets down towards this river, and there's a mother there with her little child, and as he walks towards her, he realizes that the mother is starting to get nervous because she thinks he's going to take her child. And she's saying, I want my baby, I want my baby, I want my baby. And she's starting to get agitated and, and, and losing it and, and screaming, I want my baby, you can't have my baby, I want my baby. And this light goes on for Christopher Wright's dad and he comes back to the village and he gathers the people together and he says, God says, I want my babies. I want my babies. And someone has taken my babies and, and they're put in a jail called sin. They can't get back. And I want my babies. I want my babies so bad. I'll do whatever it takes to get my babies. I'll even give up my son to get my babies. And They said that the laughter was no longer in the village. Tears were there because they got it. They they understood because the the words that the mom used were the words of their heart. And he had just spoken to their heart. And that's exactly what God's saying to us. You're my babies. I want my babies back. I don't want someone taking you. I don't want something like sin taking you. I don't want something like sin trapping you. I don't want uh, bad decisions having you live with a life of regret rather than living with a life of hope. I want my babies back. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get my babies. Now, maybe that just sounds too beneath you, but I hope it sounds very inviting to be so wanted that the father is willing to do whatever it takes to get his babies back. And he invites us to be that responder, to say, I'm coming back. Take me back. You do the work of bringing me back, pulling me in, making us one. So those are just a few of the assets or aspects that are involved in in these couple chapters of what it looks like. And so here's where I want you to make the experience yours. It isn't enough for us to understand, oh yeah, it goes suffering, and it goes exaltation, and it goes victory, and it goes uh, substitution. It goes you and the Father. It goes oneness. It goes intimate. I want, on Jesus' behalf, to invite you to not waste his substitution for us. As you look at this table today, this is his invitation to hospitality. Welcome to the family. 
As you look at this table today, this is an expensive price that says, I want my babies. So I would hope that you wouldn't think there's anything in your life that you have done that's big enough to keep you from this table, that's big enough to keep you from oneness with Jesus. And and there are probably some in this room today who've never, ever responded to God. You've asked him for help, but you've never told him, if help never comes and I still suffer, I want to be your baby. No matter what happens, I want you. So if I got to go through hard time, I want to go through hard time with you, not alone. If I'm going to have pain in my life and suffer, I want you as the sufferer to be with me because I have brought suffering on you. The story isn't about Adam who rebelled. The story isn't about Israel who rebelled. The story isn't about, and you put in the blank with whoever else did their own thing. It's about us. And it's about a rescuer who wants his babies back. So if you have never said to God, I have rebelled. And I accept your terms for being one. I want to invite you to wave that white flag and just say, I surrender to your terms. Paul writes this really curious verse in Galatians. It says, for freedom, he has set us free. And I'm kind of like, really? Of course. I mean, for freedom, he didn't set us captive. For freedom, he set us free. Just kind of sounds like a no-brainer, you know? Like, how did that make the Bible, you know? Uh, but I realize I don't experience freedom more than I experience freedom. And I've been set free, and I experience bondage more than I experience freedom on a daily basis. And if I would rehearse that verse more, I would understand that I spend more of my life living as though Christ didn't die for me than that he did. And so I'm not just talking to those of you who've never surrendered to God. I'm talking to those of you who have said, yeah, I'm checking in, but I'm checking out. And I'm inviting you to check in again today. That you wouldn't live distant Because that is the pain that Jesus died to kill. So that we might experience oneness with him. He has his babies back and we understand he loves us. He's nuts about us. He wants to walk and live with us. The people of Israel saw themselves as suffering. And that's why when it looks like they're suffering, they're seeing themselves in there. And God's saying, I'm suffering. Suffering of the hurt of someone who's walked away from me. And I'm inviting you to walk back. The people of Israel saw that captivity was their punishment. And God's saying, captivity is what you were in. The punishment was that you weren't experiencing being my people. And he invites us to know freedom. Because he is the deliverer, but he delivers us so that we might experience that freedom. So Psalm 53 
ends this way. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. That's us. He will divide his spoils with us. Paul describes it this way. We are fellow inheritors or heirs with Christ. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered among the transgressors, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. He invites us to his share today. His share. Not ours. It's not what we deserve. It's not what we can earn. It's more. He invites us there. And that's called grace. So in the midst of a prophetic, biting message, there's hope. The hope, though, is what Jesus has done for you. The place he's taken for you. The the victory he's accomplished for you. The resurrection that he offers you. So let me pray that that would be your experience today. Father, I want to thank you that as we um, gather together and worship, as we say words together to song, as we pray together, as we come to this table together, that God, you would be pleased with the response of your babies today, that you get us back. In Jesus' name, amen. Pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com.